Nehemiah chapter 4. And as you open, I'm just going to give you a quick summary of where we've been over the last three chapters. So the first week we talked about this idea that Nehemiah was a, a man who hadn't lost the wonder. He still actually believed that the impossible was somehow probable. That there would be a way that God would enable significant, monumental tasks to be accomplished for His purposes. And he believed that. We then looked the second week at this idea of Nehemiah being a man that knew or understood the power of words. The fact that words can either be the very thing that builds up the community of faith, that encourages and challenges one another to living out the gospel, to being a part of the calling of making disciples, or our words, when not measured, can be the very thing that destroys and begins to crumble the community of faith and people in general, and even the work of the Lord. And then this last week, we looked at chapter 3, and, uh, and kind of tackled the idea of the word repair, or hazak. And what is it that God is repairing in you? What is it that's broken that needs to be restored? And so, with that kind of as a background, today we are looking at chapter 4. And the main thing that we are looking at is Nehemiah's response to rubble. All throughout the chapter, there's this idea of rubble. In fact, rubble is something that we've perhaps become a little bit more familiar with over the last year or so. Whether it's the rubble that took place in the earthquake of Haiti, or the rubble in Chile, or the rubble in the Middle East as war and conflict is going on, all around are these pictures or images of rubble. And for many of us, we, we tend to think that rubble is out there. It's some other place, some other land, some other people, or it's in some story about a man named Nehemiah and a city that was broken and had a lot of rubble, and it's something that's distant and apart and other. But the reality is rubble is in each of our lives. Whether it's small or big, various shapes, various sizes, different ways, rubble seems to appear in our life. little definition of rubble. Rubble is debris that <clears throat> it's the remains of something that's been destroyed or broken. It's a word that's really closely tied to this idea of rubbish, something that's worthless, useless, unwanted, unusable. Another kind of approach looking at it is to attack something strongly. The long and short of it is rubble is the stuff that gets in the way of rebuilding. Rubble's the things that, that kind of tears down the opportunity to reestablish something. So whether you're trying to rebuild a family, rebuild a home, rebuild a business, rebuild a church, rebuild your heart, anything that's broken, anything that's kind of been ruined, rubble is the thing that stands in the way of us moving from broken, moving from destroyed to repaired, to built up, to restored. And so all throughout chapter 4, you see this picture of rubble. In fact, uh, the people of Israel and Nehemiah had gotten to the place where they just said, you know, our strength is failing. All around us is unusable, broken, destroyed, useless rubbish. But we somehow have to turn into something that's profitable. 
that's good. And so look in verse 10 with me. You kind of see the plight, position that they're in. It says, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. The thing that I love about this particular passage is that in no way is the Bible trying to sugarcoat the situation. That whenever repair starts to happen, rubble is going to show up. Rubble's there all the time when repair begins. In fact, the more you think about it, the more you spend time questioning it, Anytime someone steps out in mission, anytime someone is seeking to make disciples, whether you're going, moving forward and impacting people, whatever calling God has begun to place on your life, whenever you step out, rubble happens, opposition happens, discouragement happens, defeat happens. And it's all these things that are beginning to build up, and the rubble is accumulating before the people of Israel. So whether you're serious about following Jesus, and you say, I want to give my life completely to Him, whatever He asks me to do, I'm going to follow. Or whether you're committed to listening to His voice and obeying. Or whether you're contemplating stepping out and doing something pretty courageous for the kingdom of God. Whenever that happens, opposition comes. Whenever you try to live counter to the culture, Opposition will come. Discouragement, defeat. And and it is in this particular passage that we see it so clearly. We see this theme that, that kind of describes for us that it's not a matter of if opposition will come, but more a matter of when and how opposition will show up. And so you see right from the very beginning of chapter 4 that opposition is coming, and it's coming in the way of two men, Sambalat and Tobiah. So look at me to the first... Um, Four verses. It says, Now when Sambalat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Right from the beginning, they get this little attack from Sambalat and Tobiah. And the attack is all about rubble that comes from words. There's really five questions and one snide remark in these first three verses. Five questions and a snide remark. And the interesting thing about these questions is that I think the rubble that they produce is the very rubble that often kind of invades our lives on a weekly, daily basis. So here's what I want you to do for me. As we go through these five questions and the snide remark, I want you to jot down the very specific kind of attack that came in each of the questions. And then right next to it, if you sense that rubble is building up in that area of your life right now, just put a little check. We're going to come back to that later on. So think about these five questions and snide remark. 
And when you see that kind of pop up in your life, put a little check next to it. The first thing that Samballot does is he questions their strength. He questions their strength. The first thing he says really clearly is, what about these feeble Jews? Who are these feeble Jews? And he attacks them personally. He goes right at the fact that they are feeble in his mind. The word literally means withering away, like a dying plant. Essentially, he's coming in and he's saying, you are a withered people. You're weak. You take up space. You can't accomplish what you set out to do. You're powerless. You're useless. And you're, you're feeble. Not equal to the task. So he goes right at the strength of the people. I was reading a little quote by a man named um, Alan Redpath. And Alan says that the world judges everything by size, by headlines, by imposing plans, by vast advertisements, and it pours contempt upon the feeble. I think one of the first attacks that tends to come, one of the first pieces of rubble that builds up is when we begin to, to question, or it gets questioned of us, the power or the strength that someone possesses. So he questions their strength. The second is he questioned their motives. Symbolic next went right at the heart of it and went right at their motives. He, he makes this statement, will they restore it for themselves? He's basically saying, you know, I don't think they're in this for the right reasons. I think they're in it for their own individual glory. They're in it for their own pride. They're in it for their own selfish ambition. They're trying to build something up because of the honor it will bring them. And this has nothing to do with the work of the Lord. I, I'm amazed at how often when someone steps out because they sense a calling from God to do something courageous, where they sense that they need to repair something, how often an attack of motives comes. Oh man, they're, they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Oh man, I, I can't believe that they're... And you start hearing these just comments regarding the very motive of why someone's doing something. It's interesting how easy it is to attack motives, isn't it? I mean, there's no way for anyone to defend it. So easy to attack with no defense. In fact, you begin to just question the motives and the person suddenly is left in the defensive. They can't do anything. Can't prove yourself right or wrong because there's no blacks and whites. It's all shades of gray. And even if you try to change what you're doing to somehow convince the one that's accusing you of improper motives, then they question why you changed what you just changed. It's an attack that puts the accuser kind of in the driver's seat. And it's one of the very things that I think causes people to quit. It's an attack on motives. And that's what he does. He attacks the very motives, their very heart. The next thing he does is he begins to question their faith. He makes the statement, will they sacrifice? Will they sacrifice? I mean, this one's a little harder to interpret, but... Basically, it's a, it's a taunt. He's taunting them. The taunt would go something like this. Are these Jews going to pray the wall up? Do they really believe that their devotion to God 
will make the wall magically rise from the rubble. It's as if he came to them and he said, you know, your forefathers' faith couldn't even keep these walls up. What makes you think that your faith will in any way allow these walls to rise from the rubble? He's questioning their faith. You don't believe. I mean, this thing that God has called you to? No. No, He, he won't provide for it. He won't enable it to happen. I mean, in the first service, sitting right here in the front two seats is Brian and Kalia Bogue. And they head out on Tuesday to Thailand for the summer. And they've been sensing for a long time that God has been leading them in that direction. And I guarantee if you talk to them, one of the things that often comes up when we step out into the unknown is our faith begins to come into question. I mean, can God really come through? Can He really provide the support we need? Will it, will he, how will we be able to find housing when we get there? I mean, in their case, you really want us to leave our family and our grandchildren here because you've called us to something. You, for the Jews, you really want us to try to rebuild this wall because it seems impossible. And so he begins to question their faith. Next thing he does is he begins to question their perseverance. He makes the statement, will they finish up in a day? I mean, you really think they're going to stick to the task? You really think they're going to see this through? I mean, I, I could just imagine standing there looking at this daunting task. Four and a half miles of wall. Some would, would speculate that the base was about 25 feet wide. At other places it got thinner, maybe 10 feet wide. You're talking about, this is not your backyard fence. This is a, a huge task. And you can picture Sam Ballot standing there just going, hey, I'm just asking questions. Do you think you can really finish this? I mean, the amount of effort, the amount of time. I mean, this is going to require so much work. It would probably just be easier if you quit now. I mean, I'm just trying to save you the time and the effort. Because when you get three quarters of the way done, you're still not completed and you'll probably give up then. So just give up now. I mean, how often do we hear that exact same thing when it comes to us stepping out into what God has asked us to do? Or even the things that He's commanded us in the Bible to do. I mean, just give in now. I mean, you honestly think you're going to maintain your purity. Just give in. It's not worth it. You honestly think you're, you're going to continue to follow. You think you can recover in your marriage, or the, or the the debt you have right now, just give in, just give up. So he's he's questioning their ability to persevere. I mean, just imagine the thing that you sense God asking you to do right now. And I guarantee you can come up with a bunch of reasons why it's not possible, why it'd be easier just to quit now. And that's what he's doing. He's attacking that specific thing. Next thing. And the last one before we get to the snide remark is he questioned their ability and resources. He questioned their ability and resources. He made this statement, Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? I mean, first, do they really have the ability to do this? I mean, you really think 
this task you're setting out to, you can, you can build a wall, a huge wall. I mean, you've got perfume makers on your work crew. I mean, these, this guy's probably never lifted anything. I mean, this isn't, this isn't, I mean, you don't even know how to make mortar. You don't know how, you've got no engineers. This, this plan is crazy, and you don't have the ability to do it. But then he also says, he questions their resources. I mean, you, are you going to tell me that you're going to dig through over 100 years worth of rubble and in the midst of that find stones that will be strong enough and sturdy enough to build a wall that will last when attacked? I mean, are you telling me that? A lot of people speculate that the, the idea of him saying and burned ones at that, one of the ways that cities were often attacked is when they would come to a particular wall, if the wall was made of limestone, which is what um, they think, is that they will begin to burn a fire right at the base of one section of the wall, and they'll just keep throwing accelerant on it, they'll keep throwing wood on it, and they'll keep this fire going. And when limestone gets to a certain temperature, it just begins to melt. And they'll just knock over the wall. And so he's saying in the midst of this melted, broken, 134-year-old rubble, you're going to pull out the resources necessary to accomplish this task. She's just going right after him. And the rubble just keeps building up and building up and building up. And then he finishes his little buddy, probably this little squatty man named Tobiah, makes this statement that, um, listen, he, he says this, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. I mean, if we were to put it in today's terms, Tobias standing next to Sam Ballot. Sam Ballot's just asking these questions, just peppering them, saying this is impossible, it's not going to happen. And then Sam Ballot basically says, well, let's just suppose you did get the wall up. And let's suppose all those other things we said were impossible somehow came to be. Even when you're all done, it's going to suck. It's going to be horrible. A, a fox could tiptoe across the top and the thing will be ruined. I mean, how many times does that come into your mind? This feeling of vulnerability. That, okay, God, even if I have the faith, even if you're going to step in and do something great, most likely, when it's all said and done, it's going to suck. I mean, the things that, I, God, the things that I have to do, I just never seem to quite put it all together. I feel inadequate. I feel incapable. I, I mean, you're, you're telling me that if I really put in effort into my marriage, that it's somehow going to come out better than it is right now. Or that if I really take up the call to reach my neighbor, I mean, I don't even like my neighbor. It, in the end, it's not going to work. It's just not worth it. And so he's just, these two guys are just bringing and heaping up rubble upon rubble upon rubble of words. And it doesn't finish there. They go on in verses 7 and 8 to do rubble through action. If you look at 7 and 8, it says this, But when Sembalit and Tobiah and all their cronies heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were, again, were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion to it. Not only were they being attacked with words, they were being attacked with actions. 
They said, we're going to come and attack them. We're going to destroy them. We're going to kill them. So maybe as you've been checking your list, you've been saying, okay, man, I feel like rubble is building in my life related to faith. Or it's building in my life related to perseverance. Or I feel inadequate for the task. Maybe you're checking off some of those, but maybe it's just you feel the circumstances are stacked up against you. I mean, you're, you're trying to accomplish something for God, and, and it just seems that this whole group, this whole army, all these circumstances, the way everything has kind of fallen toward you just isn't working out right. I mean, it's just insurmountable. And so in the midst of all of this, I don't know if you've ever found yourself there. Maybe you find yourself there right now. Maybe you find yourself there weekly. Sometimes feel like I do. Not up for the task. Not sure it's quite worth it. And you, you, you get that feeling, and yet Nehemiah's response is pretty amazing. I mean, all week long I've been kind of wrestling through how he responded and what it has to say to us. Let me point out a couple ways in which he responded. Because I think it's a pretty clear pattern that faith is lived out by Nehemiah in two primary ways. The first primary way is through prayer and action. And I put those two together because I think they come together. Let me show you just in the text. Uh, So there's this pattern. In verses 1 through 3, there's an attack on on the people of Israel. In verses 4 and 5, the immediate response is prayer. Then in verses 7 and 8, we showed the other attack. And then verse 9, the immediate response is prayer. Every single time Nehemiah throughout this book, is faced with a setback. He immediately responds with prayer. We talked a little bit about prayer in the first week, but I am convinced of this. The more self-confidence you have, the less prayer you will probably have in your life. The more you are convinced you are unequal to the task, the more you realize your need for someone other than yourself, the more prayer will be in your life. And prayer is really the true measuring gauge of where your trust lies. If your trust lies in yourself, your prayer is little. If your trust lies in Him, your prayer is much greater. And so into the midst of this, He responds with prayer, but He doesn't stop there. He responds with action. So let's look at the kind of the pattern again. So the attack is in one and three. One through three, the prayers four and five, and then the action. I love this part is verse six. He immediately responds with this statement. It's so defiant. He just says, so we built the wall. So they're bringing, they're bringing the attack. They're, they're beating us down, and yeah, so we just built the wall. We decided we're doing it. We're just muscling up and getting to work and making it happen. Then you see it again. So in verses seven and eight, there's an attack. Verse 9, he prays. And then the second part of verse 9, it says, and so we set the guard. So they say they're going to come kill us. Okay, we set a guard. Here we go. We're going to do it. Then a little later on, verse 15, so it says, we returned to the wall, each to his own work. So we got back to work. We picked up the tools and we started to make it happen. Then verse 17, he says, if that's not enough, we decided one hand for work, one hand for the sword. I mean, you're going to come, you're going you're gonna to get two hands. Because we're working and we're not stopping. Then we get to verse 21 and it says, so we labored. I think you see a pattern here. 
Every time Nehemiah faced the setback, he said, I'm going to respond with prayer and I'm going to respond with action. I'm not going to sit back and wait. I'm going to respond. And I'm convinced that that has to be the same approach we take. Because far too often, perhaps what we do is we respond with excuses. The task is too great. The work is too big. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be effort. And we go, well, you know, maybe it's just not the right timing. Maybe, I mean, we need to probably get some other things in order before we jump into it. Or we go, man, I, you know, I just probably, I'm probably not the one he's calling. He's probably calling someone else to do it. So, man, I, I'll just be praying. I'll be sitting back here waiting, see who God brings forward to accomplish the task at hand. But what, what convinced me so much that this is important is chapter 3. When I talked about this idea of repair. And what amazed me was the list of people that were on the work of the wall. I mean, person after person after person, many of which had no ability to build a wall. I mean, they wouldn't have been your ideal choice to step up and start the work. But the reality is they stepped into it. And they said, you know what? There's, there's something that needs to be done, and I'm playing my part. I'm doing my role. I'm convinced that disciple-making is not reserved for the Leaf and Jamies of the world. It's for you. It's for me. It's an all-hands-on-deck affair. Church planting, as we launch out, it's not just for Ryan and his family and David and his family. It's for the church as a whole. Reaching the city of Spokane is not just for a few of us, it's for all of us. It's an all-hands-on-deck. I mean, the only way the wall gets built is when the troops rally. And it's so clear in chapter 3, it's so clear here that it's prayer and action. The thing that probably stood out to me the most in this chapter was not even the prayer and the action, but it was another thing that I, I think Nehemiah had down that I'll be honest, many times I I feel like I fail it. I just don't quite get this truth. That in the midst of whatever rubble you face, in the midst of whatever opposition and discouragement there is, the text is so clear that God is over all of it. He is in all of it. He works through you in all of it. It is really not about you, and really it's all about Him. Over and over, you see it here in this text. It talks about this idea of remembering the Lord. I think the reason it it comes as difficult for us, for me sometimes, is because I tend to define my uh, accomplishments by my own ability. Do you ever do that? That I think sometimes the greatest thing that kind of creeps into our life is this belief that if we can accomplish something, then it's going to turn out well. That somehow what it needs or requires is me. My abilities, my talents, my resources. The things that I bring to the table. And that if I can do it, if I can bring it, somehow muster up strength, somehow rally the troops, somehow impose my will on the situation, that then the situation will be better. Because it's me that accomplishes it. And what's so interesting is the gospel... It's the opposite of that. 
I mean, the gospel is really one that calls us to die to ourselves, that it's not about us. In fact, in verse 10, we saw it really clear. They said, the rubble is too much. We cannot accomplish this un- and of ourselves. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole gospel is that you're not good enough. You can't accomplish it. That is he that stepped in and took your place and my place. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty is really in our inability. I'm convinced that what God often does is put us in a place where we are or where our inability gets exposed. That where we have to come face to face with the reality that, you know what? It isn't me. It isn't about me. It's really about Him. You see it in two particular verses here. Verse 14. You see it where He says, uh, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then fight. And then verse 20 he says, In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. He says God is over it. He is in all of it. So remember Him who is great and awesome. He's not saying you're equal to the task. He's saying He is equal to the task. See, I'm convinced what the church needs is not more strategic plans or not greater um, growth strategies. What the church needs is a greater understanding of the power of God. What the church needs is a greater dependence on the Holy Spirit. What the church needs more than anything, what you and I need, is this clear understanding that it is about Him, that it is remembering Him who is great and awesome. Anytime we face the rubble and we somehow try to weed through it ourselves, or just put it on our back and figure it out, I, th- I think we miss the point. I think we get it all backwards. It's really about remembering Him. It's remembering His grace. It's remembering His goodness. It's remembering Jesus Christ in our place. It's remembering Jesus Christ who works through us to will and act according to His good pleasure. I mean, we could go through passage after passage that speaks of it is Him that does the work through us. Now, obviously, prayer and action on Nehemiah and the people's part was present, but it was only able to be accomplished because He fought for them. So as we head into kind of wrapping up our time this morning, we're going to take communion. And communion, again, is all about this remembrance that He is great and awesome. In fact, it says this, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance Remember me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup in remembrance. It's remembrance of His work on our behalf. and It's remembrance of His ability to overcome the rubble and enable us to walk toward what He's calling us to do. And so as you go to take communion this morning, before you go, I'd like for you to look at that sheet of paper again. It says your strength might not be good enough. That says your perseverance, you might have checked that one. It says you don't have the ability or the resources. Whatever ones you've checked, I want you to consider those in light of the cross. Consider those in light of Him. Not in light of your circumstances, not in light of your abilities, but in light of who He is. Let's pray.